I always am a bit baffled by people who deny either that there is such a thing as higher cognition, which is we can have a conversation about okay. that, <laughs> and then the people, and then and then and then the people who want to sort of concoct a sensory motor origin out of it. There are many cherished ideas that continue to be used, not because they are likely to be what's really going on, but because they are very amenable to formalism. The current craze in AI is large language models, which are entirely based on a human product. Right. So, in other words, the irony is just delicious that. Suddenly, here we are dealing with human language. This is Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. If you listen to Brain Inspired regularly, my guest today needs no introduction. Uh, so, aside from his name, I won't. John Krakauer has been on the podcast multiple times, and if you like our discussion today, I do link to his previous episodes in the show notes at braininspired.co/podcast/182. Today, we discuss. Some topics framed around what he's been working on and thinking about lately,、uh, things like whether brains actually reorganize after damage, the role of brain plasticity in general, the path toward and the path not toward understanding higher cognition, how to fix motor problems after strokes, artificial general intelligence, how next time we should both agree that we're going to record our conversation for a podcast,、uh, and uh, plenty more. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you get 30 extra minutes wherein we discuss my own current research project, and John lends his thoughts、uh, to that. Bolshoi spasiba, Patreon supporters. It's a little rusty Russian there. I apologize. Here's John. So this is a、um, a fun way to realize that you did not know that we were going to be recording a podcast episode today, because I said, "Hey, I'm about to hit record," but before I do, I was going to ask you something else, and you said, "Oh." I didn't know we were doing that. <laughs>、uh, welcome, friend of the show, John Krakauer. Hello, how are you? Happy New Year! Happy New Year to you. Yes, this is.、Um, <laughs> I can tell this is going to be a harbinger of 2024, being full of surprises. <laughs> yeah, I, we were we were kind of just、uh, shooting the shit there for a while, and, and I thought, gosh, we should get recording pretty soon here.、Uh, and then I no, surprised no, you、oh, by no. saying, "Hey, it, that's what we're doing." It's always a mistake when you think somebody's your friend. Oh come on! I was about to ask you something very personal, which I'm now not going to ask you. <laughs> At least in the recorded version. <laughs> yes.、Mm. Um, yeah, but so we had gone back and forth a little bit,、um, kind of teased each other back and forth a little bit about you coming on again,、um, and I thought this would be a good time, specifically with a list of grievances, and I thought、um, that's sort of a. A euphemism for you know just topics that you might want to discuss, but I thought、uh, the 2024 the this could be an annual list of grievances by John Krakauer sort of recurring <laughs> episode. Oh my gosh, I kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we were we were、uh, catching up on how you're globe trotting and、uh, starting some programs. Running some other programs, designing a warehouse. There's an interior designer in your actual house right now. <laughs> um, and uh, we chatted the other day, and you were you were telling me I'm not sure what you want to chat about, but you were you were telling me about、uh, a new manuscript that you're working on that you're excited about.、Um, so really, the floor is kind of open to discuss whatever we want to discuss. And actually, I would like to pick your brain because I'm back in academia, and I'm、uh, swimming in a sea with lots of 
old pieces of wood that seem like they're floating, but uh, when I grab onto them, they start sinking down and don't hold me up, that sort of thing. So if we get to that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've also thought about you. It must be given what your journey with the podcast and all the perspectives and all the reading and all the thinking you've been doing. It must be quite interesting to nice get to back in the lab, get back in the lab. You know, it, it it's like... Um, going to college again, you know, when you're much older, right? What is that line? Oh, if only I'd known the things I know now when I was younger, right? So in other words, you're getting a, another go around. It must be sort of, almost yeah. like to hear your, your view on um, how different does it feel doing neuroscience this time around, you know? That's interesting. I am the oldest person in the lab. I'm the old man. Uh, you know, <laughs> sitting among graduate students <clears throat> and postdocs. Um, I'm older than my advisor, Eric Itchery, who'll be, I'll have him on a conversation on the podcast pretty soon. Um, but let's, let's come back to that. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, 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 and I know, and I, and I love Eric, you know, I am. Um, I don't even, did you even know where I was working? I, I don't know if you knew where I was working. Or do you know I what? Doing. I don't think yeah. that I had clicked. You don't and, keep uh, up with everything I do, John. I, Come on, I, I, thought, I, know, I, I know. thought I had I know, a friend. Well, well, please say hi to Eric for me. That's really I will, great. okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, I asked, uh, I was asking Mark Nicholas, who's in the lab, um, I'm not sure if you remember, he's a, a graduate student, uh, if he had anything to ask you, because he had mentioned you, you get mentioned fairly frequently. Um, <laughs> a, another interesting thing about going back into the lab uh, is that I'm sort of like known in that community, you know, and that's an odd thing. And in fact, Eric told me that I was the most bashful celebrity he'd ever met, which I thought oh, was an odd thing to say, well, you know, but especially because I'm not a celebrity. Well, yes, you are. Actually, yes, you are. In yes, a very you are. narrow. You, 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 not at all. If there were, you, you occupy a very important place in the ecosystem. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm, I'm trying to maintain that occupation as well as doing real science. And so maybe we'll get to that later. Well, I would simply, you know, just if I may just object to that. Um, you know, I think I talked to you once way back about, you know, Hassock Chang's sort of definition of philosophy of science, which he thought was complementary science. And I think that you are doing real science, having the conversations you're having and playing the role that you're playing. And I mean that sincerely. It, it is not true in my view to call you know oh general you know gathering data in the lab is real science and having the discussions that i've had they're, they're both complementary forms of science that's what i would say and when you when and when everything is sort of when the dust settles i think it'd be very interesting to see where the greater percentage of the variance of your influence has been oh i i can guarantee you the greater percentage has been through the podcast i mean that's not even a, a question but that's um as much of a, a knock on my own uh, lab science. <laughs> Again, I just uh, I, I know that I know that's the way that people think, but I do I actually think it's non pluralistic to take that mm. view. But you All know right. me about that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so so what is new with you? What what do you want to uh, chat about before we go down the rabbit hole of my own problems? Well, I mean, as I was sort of saying to you off, you know, off the recording, you know, I my interests at the moment what I'm sort of doing is sort of Sherringtonian sort of physiology and psychophysics, um, looking at um, the phenotype of hemiparesis. It's really amazing, right, that stroke is that gives you the most common motor disorder. And 
you know, you can make smooth reaching movements and prehension, and we all do it, we're doing it now with our coffee cups, and yet if you broke that system, I don't think any of us would guess how it would fall apart into the bits of abnormal features that you see, right? You get weak and you lose dexterity and you have spasticity and you have synergies and, you know, it's just very strange to try and guess how the sim system has been assembled mm. by looking at the way it falls apart like Humpty Dumpty after damage. And so I've, I'm finding it really interesting to sort of try and dissect the behavioral phenotype better and better and then try and map that onto uh, physiology and anatomy. So you would laugh, I think, Paul, a very mechanistic, Sheratonian, you know, yeah, hardcore uh, project. Uh, and yet that's exactly what it is. And I'm very lucky to have people, younger people who have grants now with me and with others also working on this. Um, you know, wonderful young scientist in at Harvard, David Lin, who has a grant working on this, uh, someone called Ahmed Arak, who's doing 3D reaching studies, you know, marvelous tracking on the phenotype with us, uh, a former postdoc of mine who's now chair of cognitive science in Israel doing it. So in other words, there's a real, I think, interest in trying to do old school, mid 20th century behavior and physiology on an old problem with new tools, and um, I'm finding that very exciting and very so, interesting. But when you say Sherringtonian, let's just make sure that people know what you're talking about. You're talking about Chuck Sherrington, but uh, when you say Sherringtonian, <laughs> Sherringtonian um, you mean kind of a circuit-based uh, approach. Uh, area X connects to area Y, what happens? And, and then in your case, sometimes you're lesioning, creating a stroke, and or studying uh, strokes in humans, right? Well, actually, yes. In other words, there we're obviously not lesioning them on purpose, um, but um, but we, you know, with a really fabulous primate physiologist, uh, Stuart Baker in the UK, um, we have a grant where we're trying to create a new um, model of, of hemiparesis. You know, going beyond the, the classic Kuipers and Sarah Tower papers from the mid twentieth century. Uh, and where mainly they were making pyramidal lesions. Um, and they were not seeing some of the features that are very prominent in humans. So there's a sort of a mystery as why even is our closest relatives not showing the full panoply of abnormalities. Um, and in fact, it may be interesting to listeners that the term extrapyramidal, which is what people use now to talk about movement disorders in neurology, came from the fact that you couldn't see the positive symptoms um, in the pyramidal lesion monkeys, you, they didn't have spasticity, they didn't have synergies, they were just weak and lost dexterity. So it led you to a bait. Well, where, where are those things? They must be extra pyramidal. I see. Right? And, yeah. um, and yeah, it's the neologism. Yes, exactly. Um, it came from being puzzled by the absence of the movement disorder in the stroke model in the monkey. Um, and so we're trying to address that mystery. Um, and it also leads to a, a, a real rethink about the corticospinal tract and how utterly dependent humans became on it. And the way I like to talk about it is the corticospinal tract, which is the tract that is the cause of hemiparesis after stroke when it's lesioned, mm. is not just a control of muscles, it's a control of all the other controllers. Mm. 
So the disassembly that you see is a manifestation of its loss of control over many, many, many centers along the axis, the neural axis. Um, right. And, so, and yeah. Are, are the varieties of those uh, phenomena, the behavioral phenomena, are those varieties perplexing? Are they are, are they systematic? Uh, because you know what you've seen is like given a, a stroke. Um, it's interesting to see the the varieties, right, of, of different behavioral outcomes. Well, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a bit of both, right? On the one hand you see these features over and over again, and yet they are weighted differently, and they appear at different times after the lesion. Post, so you've yeah. got a mixture of, of, it looks like the underlying equation, if you could only find it, is the same, but the weights on the parameters are different. It's, and then, of course, in terms of all the potential ways that you could do it, the null space of potential connections. In other words, is it something about the brainstem? Is it something about the spinal cord? Is it something about the connection between the brain, the brainstem, and the spinal cord? In other words, there are many either-or possibilities that you can entertain in terms of connectivity and strength of connections, and you're just going to go have to find out. So in other words, you're absolutely right. It is about very much about what's connected to what and what's the strength of the connection and what's upregulated and it's painstaking and of course we don't in humans have good ways yet to image the brainstem and the spinal cord so that's why you know people have been looking under the light for so long with non-invasive methods cortically um, so yeah it's 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 a very but it's a but it's a it's a huge undertaking Paul right it's basically a decades-long project to better characterize the behavioral abnormality begin to get a better insight into what its generative mechanisms are it's really old-fashioned cool neuroscience, I hmm. think. But this, so, I mean, you started this off by saying that I might be surprised to hear that you're involved in this kind of a mechanistic approach, uh, because a lot of what we talked about in the past has been, I mean, you, you have an interest in higher cognition, right? And and thinking, you know, in, in terms, at least in terms of higher cognition, and you can correct me if, if I'm misspeaking for you here, um, that that kind of circuit A uh, goes to node B, goes to node C, that kind of thinking, that Sherringtonian approach is not going to get us to understanding higher cognition, whereas what you're doing right now is a much uh, much more mechanistic uh, circuit-based approach. So, um, but, you, but you've been interested in movement and behavior itself also for a long time, so it's not like you're just interested in higher cognition, so it doesn't surprise me that much. Uh, right. I mean, and also I think, you know, when we first spoke, I mean, I always think that the, the trying to understand things versus trying to fix things are quite different projects. Now, this is one where the there's a better subterranean connection between understanding the abnormality versus trying to fix it. In other words, trying to understand a healthy system versus trying to understand how an unhealthy system works versus fixing how that unhealthy system works is along a spectrum. And so, yes, and, and you know, the projects at your own university right now at Pittsburgh, I mean, it's extremely exciting. Given this notion of the cortical spinal tract being the one ring that rules them all, and if you could bring the cortical spinal tract back online with all its potential targets, you could actually hit all the features at once of the hemiparasis phenotype, we're trying to implant electrodes in the cervical cord. Um, you know, this is work led by Marco Capogrosso and Elvira Perandini and others, um, and amplify the residual signal of the descending commands so that they can do their job better. So in other words, it's very exciting. In other words, we had a paper early in 2023 in a two patients uh, 
showing uh, that you could get quite remarkable uh, return of function as soon as you turned the stimulators on, showing that there was this residual capacity in the descending system to do better than it was doing with the patient on their own. Um, but, so but there's did, a very exciting, did, I would say, confluence. Hmm? Yeah. Sorry. Did, so does it require that there be some remaining um, activity? That it's, I mean, it's not completely yes. related. Yes. I mean, I think I, 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 I think so. In other words, but it's interesting, right? I mean, even it's the same as in spinal cord injury. When people say you have a total spinal cord injury, it's never really total in most cases. There's some residual descending. Now, what you can do with that? Um, but yes, in other words, you're. You're, you're assuming that you've got um, Some minimal residual capacity that, that, that you have to try and kickstart and bring back online. Hmm. Um, so, and then you have to mix that with behavior. In other words, this is what's so interesting to me is with the work that I've been doing in stroke with video gaming is you want to create the ideal behavioral platform um, against which you try and bring circuits online. So it's a, sort of like a double hit bring it online physiologically, and then sculpt it behaviorally and do that simultaneously. And so it's, it's a very interesting, I mean, that's sort of where I'm at in terms of a monkey model, physiology, you know, better dissection, especially in 3D of the abnormality, um, using 3D robotics and um, motion capture, um, and then trying to, in fact, do non-invasive, you know, imaging, uh, TMS, uh, and just try and get a sense of this whole thing. Um, so, yeah, that's something that I'm heavily involved in and find very enjoyable because it covers all the things that I like, like you said. It's hmm. patients, it's recovery, it's physiology, it's behavior. Um, it's not higher cognition. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, I would say, like you asked me once way back, I, it's because I've studied the motor system so much and seen patients with higher cognitive deficits and been very interested in the cognitive motor interface, which is the title I often give my talks, because I'm very interested in planning problems, apraxia. Uh, I'm very much interested. Some people have even called them, like Scott Grafton, the higher motor disorders, mm. right? Um, and, you know, in my book back in 2017, I actually quote Sherrington's 1917 paper, a big paragraph where he and his colleagues, Leighton and, and Sherrington, comment on the separation between the consternation and thinking that the chimpanzee was doing versus its surprise that its arm wasn't working. So it's a very beautiful passage where they literally point out the separation between, hey, WTF, why can't this work? And keep sending a command down to get the arm to work. And, 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 you, know, and, and you know, when you see that passage that goes back over a century, it's something that you see all the time in patients is this complete surprise at their lower level deficits when they're completely, you know, the most, most dramatic example of this, of course, is locked in syndrome, where, you know, the person has a basis pontus lesion, they can't move anything at all, right? Um, and yet they can dictate whole novels in their heads, right? In other words, I, I always am a bit baffled by people who deny either that there is such a thing as higher cognition, which is we can have a conversation about okay. that, <laughs> and then the people, and then and then and then the people who want to sort of concoct a sensory motor origin out of it, right? Yeah, um, there's sort of the four E story in some form or another. 
Um, and I mean, I, I, you know, I would love to be a motor chauvinist. I would love to say that the work that we're doing on the sensory motor system is the core set of principles that everything else will launch out of. Um, but I just, I'm a bit of a no free lunch theorem person. You're just not going to get everything out of one place. And but I, but I think that uh, as, we're, we're going to have to have a tell a different story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with that. But I, I'm not sure that you would find that many people that disagreed with you, let's say, for example, within the 4E community, the embodied, inactive, the 4E <laughs> community who... Oh, kind of, my and, God. Well... Are you joking? Well, when it really comes down to it, I, I, because they're, they're frameworks to understand, right? So if you think of thinking as, in terms of, you know, thinking can be thought of as, as internal motion, right? I mean, when you, you know, if you go and you measure brain activity, it's not like you're actually measuring uh, neural activity related to movements that just happens on the inside, but it's more of a framework for thinking about uh, how thinking evolved, um, how, because you have to analogize and model everything, right? Well, we I mean, I, I, again, this is a lovely segue into something else that I'm heavily involved with, um, which I think, if you don't mind, I mean, we let's, let's move into this, right? So sure. in other words, you know, Thomas Ryan... Uh, at, I don't know if you've ever had him on your show. I think you have. I have. Right? I just I just met him at SFN too. Yeah. Um, so, Thomas. Um, Thomas. That's right. Francis Fallon. Francis Fallon, a philosopher. Um, Kevin Mitchell. Melanie Mitchell. Um, Celeste Kid. Um, we're all part of this, and I'm sure I've not listed everyone. I hope they don't listen to this and think I've forgotten them, but uh, their names will pop into my head in a minute. Um, I have a part of something um, called, uh, it's a representational working group at Trinity College Dublin, uh, where we're working on the issue of representation in neuroscience. Um, in fact, we launched, we have an article that launched, explains our project um, in the new magazine called The Transmitter, uh, released by the Simons Foundation, uh, where we wrote about this project. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up, other than it being just what I'm a major part of, is one of the things that the 4E people are denying, when they get interesting, in other words, it's a fight worth having, is that they're anti-representationalist. In other words, the real issue when it comes to cognition you know, where the fight has happened for decades and decades is representation, language of thought, symbols. Hmm. That is something that the 4E, and I'm just going to say this broadly, yeah. deny completely. Okay. Right? Um, and As long as the caveat uh, is that you're saying it broadly. Sure. But I mean, you know, you can always do the Mott Bailey thing, which is to go, oh, well, you know, this is the overall position, which is anti-representationalist, is sensory motor, um, and then say, oh, well, there are some that will make some little qualification to squirrel out of the, being too extreme. I mean, you know, I, I think that there are papers I've seen just in the last week uh, that want to take the sort of Gibsonian affordance, non-representationalist, embedded... I mean, you know, it, it, it rears its head in all sorts of ways, and it's basically anti-cognitivist. Um, and, you know, to go back to the beginning of what I was saying, as 
you're, you're just not going to get to those phenomena uh, from the sensory motor system. And you know, just another point here, um, there are two kind of strains, right? There are the neuroscientists <clears throat> who want to sort of tell a biology of cognition. They want to get away from a psychology of cognition. Even when you had Max Bennett on your show, there was, oh, well, those are psychological terms, right? So in other words, there's this idea that we've got to get away from a psychology of cognition and we need a biology of cognition, you know, basal cognition, you know, things like what Mike Levin is doing, Pamela Lyons, that strain, um, that surely that we can get some sort of life principle, some Fristonian cellular principle. So let's get let's go to biology and life, let's not go to psychology. And then you've got they go even further, you know, like Carl is 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 that they think you know, there might be a physics of cognition. In other words, you know, when you listen to Carl He's really trying to be a physicist of, mm -hmm. of cognition and agency. Um, and then, you know, in, so in the light of that sort of basic biology, basic physics of cognition, the inactivists, the, the embodied people, are quite non-revolutionary. They're at least trying to be sensory motor physiological. And then you've got people like me, old-fashioned people like me, going that we need to go, we do need a psychology and a cognitive science that isn't sensory motor, it isn't cellular biology, and isn't physics. Do you see what I'm saying? So in other words, you can see this massive effort to go down to basic principles that allow you to get away from the human-centric psychological view of cognition. Um, and that's where we're at. And of course, the deep irony of it, the final point, the deep, hilarious irony of it is... The current craze in AI is large language models, which are entirely based on a human product, right? So in other words, the irony is just delicious that after all this attempt oh. to be ecumenical and talk about intelligence in animals and go down to other basic systems and be more sensory motor, and then suddenly here we are dealing with human language, right? It's just so deliciously ironic that this is where we've reached that the cutting edge of AI right now is based on products of human cognition. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that it just turns out that the most impressive feats of claims to AGI <laughs> are a system that parasitizes, does archaeology on vast quantities of human thought in the form of language. In the form of language. So in other words, I'm just saying that so the embedded story about intelligence in an amoeba or in a worm, it, it, it's irrelevant, mm. right? In other See, words... I, that's interesting to me that you would say that because I, I know at the same time you, you are a quote-unquote pluralist, right? So um, any sort of scientific question should be approached from different angles and different levels, and, and they're all valid. Some of them may be more valid than others, but so in that sense, you might need uh, a basal, basal cognition slash life story. You might need um, also the psychology story, but the way that you're saying it right now is like one of those is the winner, um, and which is confusing no, uh, to someone I, like I, me. It, no, I'm not. I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying that being don't claim pluralism in the guise 
of reductionism. What they're trying to do is to say, if we can, if we can find some core set of things that we're allowed to call cognitive, and we can generate principles from those, then the rest is just a kind of extrapolation from those principles. In other words, the actual heavy lifting conceptually has been done at the basal level, mm. and the rest is just details. It's like footnotes to Plato. It's footnotes to the intelligence. So we're going to go from footnotes to Plato to footnotes to Friston. Do you see? It's mm. that kind of idea. And, it's, and I find that completely nonsensical. Mm. And it's actually very interesting even with people on your show, and you know, I, I, I told you about, you know, I listened to your show with, with, with Max Bennett, and I really enjoyed it. I think he, he's, he's made an amazing act of synthesis, but you, it's fascinating when you listen to that podcast, how often human psychological notions infect the discussion of the animal work. It's, this, there's this notion, I oh. don't remember where it came from, of where surplus meaning leaks into things. And so what happens, and my brother has talked about this, the difference between models and metaphors, where you don't realize that you've slipped from a model of something to making it a metaphor for what you really care about. Hmm. And so what you find is that psychological cognitive terms keep slipping in as metaphors <coughs> to the discussion. For I heard it over and over again. Oh. The animal imagines whether it's going to go left or right. 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 You hear that all the time. There's nothing, nothing in the data that support that idea. Right. So how do, okay. in that, let's say it's in a particular a, case, what would be a, a better way to, um, to use that? I mean, so vicarious trial and error was one way. Uh, vicarious trial and error, that's a real problem. But, but, that, but even there, that's not proven. No, I know, but that's what I'm saying. Is that no, you have to use words? I'm, I'm, to I'm just saying. But, but I, 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 well, you, you could just say. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm very close friends with David Foster, who's done some of the most interesting work on this. And I was with him in Portugal, and we had long debates about this. And in fact, one of the pieces that I'm writing with Dan McNamee, a computational neuroscientist, is to say that because they have neural evidence for latent structure in a maze, and therefore can generate a policy. That's interesting. However, it's a step too far to then infer that they're entertaining options before they go. In other words, that is a beautiful example mm -hmm. of the metaphor of psychology. Oh, I'm imagining options, I'm looking at one and then the other and I'm choosing. That is not the obvious and only conclusion to the data. So what I'm saying is, is that unless people are extremely careful, right? Right. But you can't be you, that careful. You, you in find humans. what was that? I think no, it's a because to in, be humans, that in humans, I, I absolutely disagree. I can actually. What I call this is the cusp. Is that it's extremely challenging to do experiments in animals, where there isn't an alternative implicit algorithmic solution to what's going on without having to invoke mm -hmm. overt imagination. Okay. And that's a something that, you know, you know, we're writing about, you know, gets to the whole notion of internal models, the whole notion of simulation, the whole notion of imagination. <coughs> and, and what I've argued in other pieces that I've written, you know, when I wrote the review of Nick Shea's book on representation and cognition, um, 
is this very interesting invoking of overt representation, imagination, simulation, when you don't need to. Right. Right there. Yeah. But in humans, to your point, in humans, it, it, you can do it in a second. You can come up with an experiment where it's simply impossible to explain the performance of the person without invoking overt representation. You know, I've told you before on this show even, definitely on the learning salon with Ida, you know, close your eyes, walk through imagine your you're standing in front of your house and walk through your home. Now, there's just no other way to explain what you're doing other than the fact that you're overtly conjuring up your house and thinking about the paintings on the walls and the turns. Now, what I'm saying is that there isn't a shred of evidence yet that any other animal species can do that. But because we do it all the time, you walk by a furniture store, you see a couch, you go, ugh, I love that couch, but it's too big for my living room, right? You just know that it's too big for your living room. You have a sense of the dimensions of your living room. You have a sense of the dimensions of the couch. You do some kind of thinking in your head that it's just not going to fit. We do it over and over and over again, right? Now, the interesting thing is, is that a lot of the time, even us humans don't, right? Whenever I'm in a hotel, mm -hmm. and I take the elevator to my floor, and I take the twists and turns to my room, I'm certainly not imagining the hotel corridor or where my door is right to the others. I'm just doing something much more mouse-like. I remember through more, I remember a few landmarks. Yep. I remember that fire extinguisher. I remember that, and I basically don't have to rise to the occasion of overtly representing anything, right? And I find my way each time. So yes, you're right. Human beings also are mouse-like a lot of the time. I would say most. But we of have the this superpower. But we have this superpower. We can do imagination. We can do time travel. I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to Pittsburgh and do science. I'm going to not do it this year because I still have my podcast. But I think I'm going to do it next year, when for these reasons I can imagine it would be more feasible. That is a very different kettle of fish to finding your hotel room through landmarks when you get out of an elevator. And we just don't know how to do it. We don't know how that works. Yeah, and all I'm, saying that. Is, let's just, all I'm saying is, let's just accept that doing, you know, an amoeba in a dish, a paramecium, a worm, or looking at a large language model, and you know, Ida Mamenajar has done some beautiful work testing them at their navigation abilities, and they suck, right? Um, and, and just accept, as David Deutsch has also said, there's something interesting about human beings and their ability to explain the universe and imagine it. And I'm just saying that at the moment, there's no contender to explain that ability and trying to explain it away through physics, basal cognition, hmm. or AI, is just a premature hubris, in my view. So do you think, uh, this is just, now I'm just baiting you, but um, there's something exceptional about humans, right? Um, you know, in, do you think in terms, less in terms of a continuum uh, among the different species in the known world, or is, or is there some sort of human exceptionalism? Well, I mean, you know, there, you know, John Maynard Smith, you know, and I'm forgetting the co-author wrote a book about, you know, transitions in evolution. Um, I don't think anyone in linguistics denies that human language is singular and does not exist on a continuum with communication. And in fact, many people even deny, you know, even if you talk to like, you know, my friend Paul Chisek, he'll go, well, language abstraction, yes, but 
Let's table that for now, right? So in other words, language is the one place where people will allow um, exceptionalism, but it's the one place, and then everything else is on a continuum. It's hilarious. And yet when you um, actually look at the requisites, you know, beautiful work by Ev Fedorenko and her team showing that, you know, language and thought are quite distinct mm. and also showing that without the thought bit, you can't use the language bit, right? So, mm. and you look at, you know, Tom Scott Phillips and his work, you know, showing that you really, there's, if there's a unique form of inference, ostensive inference, ostensive inference, that you need in order to use language. And language is proof of a unique cognitive ability, not conferring a unique cognitive ability. But the thing is, again, a lot of people aren't even familiar with this work, right? That's one of the reasons why I want to set up this program with Melanie Mitchell, if we can, at SFI, is to just have more conversations between people who really do look at primate cognition, who really do look at, you know, COVID cognition, and really say, see what they do and cannot do rather than just vaguely invoking them as proof of a continuum, right? Let's just get into it. Mm. Um, and I think it, um, most people just don't get into it. Yeah. Total aside, but how is it? I, it just struck me that you have a boss and your younger brother sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> how is <laughs> yes, that? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, David and I have converged a lot in terms of our interest. Yeah. Um, and I think David, you know, it, you know, lives in this oscillation on this topic of intelligence where he's absolutely not human-centric. And, and I think he does differ to me uh, from oh, right. a sort of cognitive science psychology. He does believe very much that there should be general principles, but he also agrees very much with emergence. Um, he, he's, he very much believes that you can have discontinuities and... Uh, and, and, you know, an emergence has two meanings, right? One is sort of these new properties from an aggregate, but it's also what sort of explanatory framework is needed and do you need to go under the hood, as he says. Um, so I think there's a very interesting tension which he enjoys between looking for general principles across the continuum, but also recognizing in the in emergency there are discontinuities, mm -hmm. right? And the question is, and the point that he always makes, which is very interesting, is that we do not know ahead of time when we should and when we should not look under the hood, when there is a continuity and when there isn't a continuity. There is no general principle of recognizing a system as being one or the other ahead of time, right? So the example he always gives is, you know, to understand the boiling point of water, you need to know about the molecular structure of water. Mm. For fluid dynamics and Navier-Stokes, you don't, right? Uh, and so, it's an open question, and he will admit to me, I think, I don't think I'm putting words in his mouth, that he says it may well be true that there are discontinuities somewhere between chimpanzees five, six million years ago and all the hominid species in between, which we don't have access to, and us, that a discontinuity occurred. And as you know, I mention all the time, don't confuse substrate continuity with functional discontinuity. Right, the example that Tom Scott Phillips always gives is um, feathers. Right, feathers for flight and feathers for thermoregulation look the same. Yeah. Right, but there's no continuity between flight and thermoregulation. Those are completely discontinuous functions for a substrate that is completely continuous feather structure. 
Yeah. Right. So that's another big problem I think that people in biology and neuroscience make is that they think that substrate continuity implies functional continuity. It does not. Do you think the recent handful of years dis discovering new intelligences in different species, like crow tool use, etc., you know, the, the more that we learn about a given species, you know, a slime mold can sol solve a maze, and what does that mean? I mean, just zooming out, it sure looks continuous, even function-wise. Uh, it doesn't look discontinuous to me. No, I, I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. In other words, you know, I think that the, the great success of reinforcement learning in the biological world has been model-free, right? There are many, many model-free ways to engage in intelligent behavior. Mm -hmm. In computer science, there's an entire model-based approach to RL. The, the problem has been to try and fuse the model-based approach in computer science and look for its analogs in the animal world. Hmm. And that's why I think it's been a failure. It's a false friend. Because it doesn't exist right? in the animal world? It doesn't exist. I don't think it exists, no. Yeah. So it's, it, they keep trying to find it, and then what you find are sort of clever, model-free kludges that get the job done, you know. Yeah. You know, successor representation, things like that, and others. Right. So I think that, and you know, the example I'm giving and I'm writing right now is in, in, in this long-term book, but you know, is take an alien watching someone playing Pac-Man. And you were looking at a Pac-Man game and there was the human playing Miss Pac-Man as Miss Pac-Man, and the computer was the ghosts. And the ghosts were chasing after Miss Patman, and at times Miss Patman chases after the ghosts. And you were watching as an alien, you'd be quite correct to say, look, there's agency in the ghosts, and there's agency in Miss Patman. And they're both intelligent. They're goal-directed, get Miss Patman, get the ghosts and the little dots, or whatever they're called. But the fact is, and the point I'm making, is there isn't a remote algorithmic overlap between well, the, way, the way the human is were playing it and the way the computer is. So it's not a continuum. It's a discontinuity that looks like it's showing you that the task can be solved in two completely different ways. Right? But to, to come to the premature conclusion, that because to me it looks like they're both running and chasing and eating, that they're therefore doing it the same way is idiocy. Could you say that, um, right. so then just sticking with this species, right, um, is there humans and everything else, or are there discontinuities between species as well? I, 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 I'm sure there are discontinuities between species too. Um, Large ones between plants uh, and, and animals, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, t um, Tomasello has written a, a book recently, came out, I think, last year, talking about these transitions, very much the sort of story that Max gave. The hierarchical, you know, hierarchical the, control book, Thomas Yeah, Sullivan? very yeah. much, yes, you know, very much this, um, the evolution of agency, I think it's yeah, called. Yeah, I think that's like right. That. But, yeah. Right, but, but basically everyone's telling this step story. You know, it's kind of ironic, right, is that everyone picks their own discontinuities and then try and nevertheless to tell a continuous story. Well, oh, well, yes, there are these new functional capacities, 
but it's on a continuum. So in other words, how are you doing that? How are you, how are you managing to have your cake and eat it? Right? Um, so I think, yes. I mean, I think that, but you know, humans are a kind of metastatic cognition. They're kind of a cancer cognition. You know, they did something that is going to destroy the planet. So you could argue that that human cognition is a step too far. It it is some horrible discontinuity, just like cancer is a discontinuity from normal cell division. That's such a pessimistic right? view uh, viewpoint. Uh, I, you know. Well, I mean, look what we're doing. I mean, we, we you know we will we are the only species that will probably engineer our own extinction. Well, I, that's right? the pessimistic part because I I understand that. Like, look at the global warming data, right? And it's hard to argue against that, except that on like longer time scales, looking back, let's say we advance far enough, quickly enough that we can solve the problem, right? So we're eating ourselves out of our own houses, um, but we need, we need to eat that food to be able to think how to build a new house, you know, for, as, a, as a bad analogy. And, and there's that potential race going on, right? Are we... Smart enough to barely see. Yeah, but, but what you're, yeah, but what you're saying basically, and um, is I think it's hubris uh, to think that we're smart enough to destroy ourselves. I mean, I understand that we are, because we could, I could, I could, I could say that you, I could argue back that it's hubris to believe that we're smart enough to save ourselves. Course, but you know, well, yeah, I mean, sure. <laughs> but all, all I'm saying is, is that if you were to take a look at the Earth from space. I mean, David Deutsch has a great example of this, right? I mean, David Deutsch gives an amazing example, which made me laugh. He said, in every other planet, if an asteroid is coming towards it, the laws of physics will mean that it will be attracted and will collide, like it did with the great extinction, right? But if you were watching Earth and humans found a way to repel an asteroid, you would be seeing one little planet with a superpower that defied the laws of physics where an asteroid actually didn't collide with the Earth. Mm -hmm. And the point that David Deutsch makes, which is so clever, he says, that's human understanding acting as a force opposite to physics. And, and, and understanding right? in terms yeah, of control in that, in that respect. That's right. That, yeah. that there, there, is a, there, is a, there is an ability on that planet that understands the universe and there is a force counter to physics forces called understanding and it's so brilliant the idea because he's absolutely right that you actually see a causal consequence of understanding that only humans have is that the asteroid doesn't hit the planet all right, right it's so, so clever right it's not an analysis it's basically it's not an analysis it's actually true it's, it's an understanding yeah. yeah right so in other words you're seeing another force in the universe repelling an asteroid right, right. And it's understanding. And, and, and all I'm saying is that is amazing. And, and he's right. I mean, he also agrees that there's this ability to understand and explain features in the universe and therefore have a causal effect on them. And that's fascinating. But studying a C. elegans isn't going to tell you how that happens. Right. But the irony is we deflect the asteroid and then the following week uh, we all die because we've killed ourselves. Yeah, right? no, exactly. In other words, exactly. In other words, all I'm saying is, is that there's something unstable, like mm -hmm. cancer, about this form of cognition that, that evolved with the same substrate. And it, it, it's just very difficult to know how to get attraction on it 
to explain it. In other words, and you know, you could say, and I'm sure you will, oh, so here we are now with cognition that can repel asteroids. Surely we can use this cognition to understand cognition itself. Perhaps we will. Perhaps we but won't. I'd rather we, yeah, I don't know. Or perhaps we won't. But I'd rather we accepted the size of the thing that we need to explain rather than, as we've been discussing, these bizarre attempts to diminish it, explain it away, hmm. deny it. That is what I find very, very strange. It's, it's perhaps because we try to, and maybe this is the reductionist um, approach, and, and we can move on in just a second, but maybe it's because um, we do understand everything else uh, as reflections of what we under, what we think about ourselves, right? Because everything else is below us, quote unquote. And so a simpler version, right? And so if we're this complex version, then we can, we have a, a high probability of explaining everything else in, in our own terms that we've invented through language and psychology, etc. Sure. Yes. I mean, I... You know, at one point, using that language, and it's this notion of sort of surplus, you know, at some point in your podcast with Max, um, so the recency he says, effect well, right <laughs> yeah, well, no, yeah. no, but it is a recency effect. But I think it's actually important because there is a link between the conversations in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Evolution of intelligence, AI, and, you know, um, it, this idea, oh, well, it's the same template, I think, at one point is said, but then more complicated things are done with it. So now there's all the weight of the extra is in the term more complicated, more sophisticated. Oh. Hmm. Right? So in other words, you go, uh, I don't know what I'm jamming into that word. It's basically this, but a little bit more complicated. But, 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 but this is where language just makes you get out of jail free, which is just to, you've actually not said anything very interesting by saying it's the same thing, basically a bit more complicated. Now you've put all the explanatory weight on the word complicated, and then you go, well, tell me exactly what that means, more complicated. You know, is a, is a computer just a more complicated calculator? Right? Is a, you know, is a plane just a more complicated car? Right? It, it, you can get away with everything with, with squirrely words like that. Do you see? Okay. And yet it's very, very hypnotically sort of, comforting to be able to do that explain away via complication yeah words like that yeah right it's just it's the same but it's just a bit more complex a bit more complicated right and 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 maybe it's just my problem but i just don't find that very satisfying sure yeah i I still i mean there's it's it's, i'm not sure that we're ever going to be able to explain ourselves via ourselves maybe we need aliens to uh, actually help us do that right tell us I'm yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. I, 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 again, I mean, in in philosophy, there's this notion of reference fixing, you know, and 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 David Barak really, you know, taught me about that and brought my attention to it, which is, let's at least agree that there's a problem in need of explanation, right, and not do that thing which is very sort of Freudian. Ah, you know, you don't like psychoanalysis because you have a you have a problem, right? And uh, and just say, look, just because we're recognizing a phenomenon doesn't mean that we've already decided on the theory for that phenomenon. And I sometimes feel that when it comes to cognition, you're not even allowed to say that it's a thing in need of explanation because people will accuse you in invoking it. You already are committed to a theoretical framework and therefore you're not worth arguing with. And I find that 
That's simply, in all seriousness, I find strange. I think there is something in need of explanation. Uh, we can be ecumenical and pluralistic about trying to understand it, but don't just deny that invoking it is already a theoretical misstep. I, I, I don't understand that move, and it could well be that I will turn out to be wrong, but I just, I don't think that's a very healthy starting point, which is to go, oh, what is cognition? What is thinking? You know, what is intelligence? You know, you're just, you know, concocting terms that are getting you into trouble. It's like the ether. I don't think cognition is the ether. I don't know what you think, but I don't think that's right. What, what, wait, what do you mean? That, can you expound on that a little bit before I agree or disagree? Well, you know, people in physics invoked an ether, right, to explain that, the propagation of light. That, okay. Uh, it, oh, yeah, and, and, and it was just, and it was a completely non-existent entity, mm. right? It's like phlogiston. I think it depends right? on how you and define it, because there is an ether if you define it the right way. Well, I don't think so. I think I think things like phlogiston and ether don't exist, and I and I think that that, that you know, just like a life force, vitalism, there are many things that invoked entities that just don't need to be invoked. They 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 they, they basically can be discarded, and and I don't think that the notion of thinking and cognition um, can be like that. That you can just tell a more uh, pragmatic, embedded, sensory motor story. Uh, you can go back to more basic principles, and you don't have to invoke um, anything extra. It's a little similar to, you know, if we want to, we can move on to sort of this recent work we've done about there no bit not being anything like cortical reorganization. Yeah, let, let's move on to that because so so in, to wrap up, like so, I, I feel an affinity and a soft spot for that four E approach, and I think because it is grounded in things that uh, I feel I understand better than things like quote-unquote higher cognition, ether or not. Um, and, and I appreciate it from a pluralistic uh, perspective, right? And I, I also appreciate the physics of, of life and um, approach and the biology of um, intelligence is, I think, what you refer to it as. And it's, I don't see... Uh, and, and please don't get me wrong. I mean, I, so do I. I mean, I think that work is fantastic. I mean, I... I think biology is amazing. All I'm saying is, you, there is there are three ways to look at it, just to finish. There's the biology of the system which deserves to be studied on its own grounds, because it's amazing, right? The incredible work that people like Mike Levin are doing. I mean, just incredibly interesting experiments, right? And all the people doing amazing work on animal intelligence. I mean, it's just glorious science, right? And it shows you all the different ways that you can have, in, you know, the algorithms that biology has come up with to do intelligent behavior, right? Of course. The question is, is when do those become models for something else? In other words, when is one animal a model for another? Mm. And I'm just saying that people like Michael Katz and others have argued very beautifully that we don't think strongly enough about what we're talking about from an evolutionary standpoint, when we claim that one animal is a model for another, okay, and I don't think there's anywhere near enough actual overt discussion about why you're allowed to claim that this animal is a model for another, and you know, and I think that it's a bit strange to see a mouse as an intelligent creature in its own right versus just seeing it as a little stepping stone towards primates, right, and there's slippage between those two ways of seeing the mouse, and then finally, Third, 
it's the metaphor problem. In other words, you go from the animal in its own right, being intelligent, fascinating, claiming that it's a model, whatever that means, and then the worst is when you don't even, it's not even a model, it becomes a metaphor, where you start saying, oh, the mouse is imagining this, imagining that, right? And so I am not in any way critiquing all the different ways that science is being done on intelligence. What I'm worried about is when conceptual slippage occurs and people aren't even aware that it's happening. Hmm. Valid. Right? So, it, 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 so do you see what I mean? There's, there's absolutely, I wouldn't, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is come across as going, right, <laughs> in the court of research, this should be allowed and this shouldn't. I mean, that is absolute disaster to do that. So I don't want it to come across there. I'm just, it's the conceptual slippage and the jumps that are made that are never overtly admitted to. Hmm. Okay, fair enough. So um, we don't, uh, different parts of our brain don't reorganize themselves to take over different functions. Instead, yes, yeah. those functions mm -hmm. were always latent and available and now get to be used. That's right. Uh, it's very interesting, you know. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I have an amazing colleague. She's a professor at Cambridge, Tamar Makin, and she's done... I think some of the most extraordinary sort of work looking at these phenomena of dramatic plasticity in cases of, you know, disease or damage, you know, amputees, for example, tool use. Um, uh, and, you know, I was doing work, as you know, on recovery of function in stroke, and there's been a lot of seminal work saying, oh, well, you know, when you lose this part of the brain, an adjacent region takes over and, you know, Ramachandran, you know, seemed to have a paper in Nature every couple of months showing some dramatic example of the brain's capacity to reorganize. Whole books get written about the amazing plasticity of the human brain. And interestingly, um, classic experiments, whether it's Magan Kassar's incredible ferret experiment and Huber and Weasel and on, and people sort of remember these experiments in a way that actually isn't the way that they were reported or even the conclusions of the authors themselves. Oh. Right? So in other words, what Tamar and I did coming from different areas is that we joined forces and spent almost three years just carefully going through these seminal papers on reorganization. And, you know, that you know, the, the occipital cortex in the blind begin, becomes used for language, you know, and mm -hmm. a hand area becomes a face area and all that kind of stuff. And That's the classic story. It's just not, yeah. it's just not true. <clears throat> right? And, 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 and the thing is, is the term reorganization is used okay, this is... Um, to invoke something special. In other words, we don't usually say when I learned how to play chess or I learned French or I learned table tennis. <clears throat> we don't usually say in that case of health, oh, John's brain reorganized for table tennis or for French. So reorganization is a term that's saved for the more dramatic instances where a limb is lost or a stroke happens or you're congenitally blind or you've had a hemispherectomy. It's almost as though the, there needs to be a special form of plasticity to live up to the dramatic event itself and the behavioral recovery itself. So when you, but so when you the say word reorganization, you mean physical. Yeah. When you say it, you mean physical. Right? Well, re re reorganization, you know, what we said is, is that you are claiming that there's been a qualitative change in the computation performed by a region 
So it was doing function A before, and it was just co-opted and repurposed to do something else. And what we're saying is it's simply not the case. It doesn't necessarily have to be the case or is not the case. It is not the case. In other words, if you look at the data, you know, it was an Occam's razor kind of approach, then you can use pre-existing notions of synaptic strengthening, um, input agnostic computational ability. Let me give you an example of what I mean, right? In other words, it would be very odd to say, you know, you're in a, you're in a hotel and you don't know the room, and so you have to make sure that you don't stub your toe on the bed and you use vision to navigate around the bed, okay? Um, it's night and there's been a power outage and now it's dark and so you can't see it. And you go, wait a minute, I remember where the bed was in this room and I'm going to navigate around it with memory instead of vision. But you're still using the same system to walk around the bed. So you basically have done a navigation computation using two different forms of input. It could be memory input or it could be visual input. So there are many, many, many examples where you can be sensory input agnostic sure. to the computation you tend to want to do. So what I'm saying is if you, there, if you look through two basic lenses at the work that everyone thought needed the invoking of reorganization, one is unmasking of latent ability that was always there and upregulating it, combined with regions that are input agnostic in terms of the computations they do, those two principles alone can explain all the dramatic results. Can, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily do. But I'm just, but, but, but I'm just saying that when you look at the actual data, you yeah. don't see it. You we talk, we go through it, and we're not just. Yeah, you don't we, need to conclude. Just be very clear. Yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just saying that we concluded that it was upregulation plus. Mm. Um promiscuous computational ability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, uh, that, that, that's what those results show. In other words, you know, it's like the ether, right? You, you, you can invoke some special thing where a region of the brain can simply have some generic canonical Lego-like property where it can basically be reconfigured. But, it, you know, even the most dramatic examples, yeah, that's like what I was gonna the ask, perinatal is, stroke. Were there compelling cases take, that would suggest the, a re reorganization? Well, I mean, let's say that so the, the most compelling one was the artificial one where McGunn Cerny's team took baby ferrets and rerouted, you know, lateral genetic nucleus output to A1. Yeah, so the LTN typically goes to visual cortex, and if you reroute it, go ahead. And, and, and basically they showed you know, what looked like orientation-selective patches, right? But what they actually tested behaviorally was just um, signal detection. Right? And if you look at the actual conclusion of that paper, they say that what you're probably seeing is a more generic mm. computational ability of primary modality cortex that can do a similar thing on basic inputs, right? That's the conclusion of those authors themselves, yeah. right? Now, if you look at the, if you look at sort of the perinatal stroke case where, you know, kids can have, lose the entire left hemisphere and, and in a subset of those people, you can see language take over in the other hemisphere. 
you know, work by Alyssa Newport and others and many others, that they also conclude that it's not reorganization because that area of the court, it's exactly in the, in the homologue that it happens. It's not in any other area of cortex. It's in the, it's in the homologue. Right? It's in the mirror image structures with the same input and output relations, the same footprint, mm -hmm. fingerprint, as Richard Parsingham calls it. Right? So in other words, there is a capacity already in the homologue, and we know that from studies even in adults, in people who haven't had hemispherectomies or perinatal strokes, that you can bring online in normal adults the non-dominant hemisphere for linguistic purposes. So it was always there. What would be really weird is if the prefrontal cortex or the occipital cortex suddenly became language cortex, <laughs> right? But it doesn't. It doesn't. Maybe we haven't seen dramatic right? enough so, examples of that yet. I mean, so, I, I, so, but so, so in other words, what I'm saying is, is, is all I would say to you, Paul, is read the paper from beginning to end, example after example, and I would challenge you to be able to really mount a credible counter-argument. And, and then I would simply ask you, why are you? In other words, is it because there's a cherished desire to hold on to this notion? Or is it because it really still is the best, most parsimonious explanation for what's going on? And all I'm saying is we don't have an axe to grind. It's just that it... Yeah. And the very fact that you're having the response you're having reinforces, I think, for me and for Tamar, that it was worth writing the paper. Yeah, uh, I look forward to reading the manuscript, which I have not looked at, as yeah. you've mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. No, but I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, it, it, it's not, oh, God, here's John and co. trying to undermine, <laughs> you know. Um, it, it's, it's just that it, it, everything deserves a second look, if not a third look. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. And, and, and you know, the other thing is these notions of, you know, Adrian Haith, you know, is, 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 is working on a very interesting paper on internal models, simulation, which goes back a little bit to the conversation we were having. There are very, there are many cherished ideas that continue to be used, not because they are likely to be what's really going on, but because they are very amenable to formalism. I think model-based reinforcement learning is really an example of that, where it's just so much fun mathematically that it holds far more sway than over what may be really happening in animals. What I, right? and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I don't know why that, I think that, so that's basically, we, we need to sort of have conceptual frameworks that are really fun to, to, to live in, which is, you know, arguably what Freud did, right? Freud constructed a conceptual framework that you could think about everyday life in. It was fun, right? It's same with astrology, right? It's fun to say, oh my God, he's a Leo, she's an Aries, right? It somehow helps us navigate complex things by having frameworks. And, you know, I'm not claiming that reinforcement learning is like astrology or psychoanalysis. All I'm saying is, is that the, the desire for premature closure with conceptual frameworks is something that we should fight and always try and break those models rather than generate existence proof for them. Right? And I think there's some weakness, I don't know where it's come from, where 
instead of trying to break things, people are trying to prove things. Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's a lot lower barrier to thinking if you accept a framework, right? And instead of always mm -hmm. questioning the framework that you're working from. Uh, I, I was going to ask you this it, broadly then, directly related to the manuscript that you were just describing. So when I interviewed for graduate school, I had uh, been a technician for a couple of years and I did some slice mouse visual cortex plasticity work where you stimulate with a certain protocol and try to induce plasticity. You put a finpradil or drugs on there to reduce NMDA-mediated plasticity. Anyway, so, and at the time, and I think still is the case, that all learning is plasticity, synaptic plasticity, mm -hmm. uh, even though, you know, work like in recurrent neural networks shows that, you know, you can have non-plasticity learning. Anyway, during mm -hmm. an interview mm -hmm. uh, for my entrance into grad school, in the interview process, the um, the faculty member said, so what do you think? Is plasticity uh, important for learning and memory? <laughs> I was sort of like taken aback a little bit because I didn't really know what to say at the time. And I said, well, I, I should hope so because there's been a lot of work uh, done on it. So anyway, my question to you then, John, is like given, you know, going through <clears throat> the research that you went through, uh, how how much is plasticity, how, how important is synaptic plasticity in the brain of, let's say, adults? And if that's too ridiculous of a question for you to address, I understand. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think, it's not a ridiculous. I think, obviously, from the point of view of things that I care about in my everyday lab life, motor skill learning and recovery from brain injury, I mean, it's un undeniable, I think, that strengthening of connections is, and is fundamental. <laughs> Right. Um, where I think it's much more interesting, and you know, I defer to you know the incredible work that's beginning to question synaptic basis for memory, for example. Mm -hmm. And you've had some amazing sort of podcasts oh, about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah um, I, I think you know, and you had my great friend David Popple on, right? Where I think this is an incredible example of where the regime of importance in the brain for things like cognition and memory versus the regime of use of substrate for sensory motor behavior may be different. I mean, but wouldn't it be interesting if the same substrate was configured and used in a slightly different way right, for these different functions? And it's maybe, I mean, and you know, People are claiming you don't need neurons for all sorts of intelligent behavior. Right. So it leads to the question, maybe you need neurons when you're an, ele you know, an elephant trunk or giraffe neck or long legs with axons going all the way from the brain to the toe, and you need muscles to contract uh, and all that. But when it comes to the regime for mem remembering things or thinking about things, you're inside the brain. You don't have to go all the way down to your toe. Maybe it's a different regime. And I think that's what's been very interesting about this discussion opening up is it's a little bit banal to say, oh, synaptic plasticity is important. Um, it, 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 it's, it's too short a sentence to sort of convey the complexity of the issue. And, you know, it'd be like saying, hey, you know, you live in Pittsburgh. Uh, explain Pittsburgh to me. Yeah. Right. Well, well, Actually, that wouldn't, how be, am that I wouldn't, explain that wouldn't take that long. But <laughs> so, so, I, so, I, so I think, so I think that 
it, 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 it's, it's obviously a property of the nervous system that's been exploited of huge importance to the kind of work on, on motor learning and on, and on recovery. Um, whether it's the sine qua non and the locus to think about memory and, cogni and cognition, especially, as you say, there are many examples where you can have these effects without, you know, like hierarchical reinforcement learning, the wonderful work by Matt Botvinnik, where basically you can have these things happen without having to invoke synaptic weight changes. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's, the, you know, I'm rambling on a bit here, but what I would say is, important for what? Right and 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 what specifically are you asking about? Yeah. And because there are many other properties of the nervous system that we should be interested in. You know, also um, Earl Miller. You know, we had him on the Learning Salon, and you know the whole issue of oscillations. And I think he made the point really well, which is why are we not sending out all our hounds? We don't know what regime is used by the nervous system. Maybe evolution, as we know, is incredibly good at, take, at, at squeezing out function from all sorts of features. And maybe the nervous system has features at multiple scales, from oscillations to synapses. And we don't know, under particular behaviors, which scale and regime is the one being having the most weight put on it. Yeah. To, do, do you see what I'm yeah. saying? And I, so I think that we're in a, I think it's been, and this is what I meant going all the way back to the beginning of the discussion with you, the great value of your show is to have open discussions with people saying, you know what, this, this story is far from over, and the synapse hegemon, <laughs> right, we need to... We, we need to release ourselves from its shackles a little bit and, and, and breathe a little bit and think about all the potential options. And that's why it was so interesting to, to have Earl on and to have you know, people like Sam Gershman and others who are saying, wait a minute, you know, let's rethink this. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I think it's a very exciting time um, to sort of just open one's eyes a little bit. And, and that's why I'm in no way, with our reorganization paper, um, saying that synaptic plasticity doesn't exist. Of course we're not. We're saying, in fact, that vanilla synaptic plasticity is sufficient to explain phenomena that seem to require something special, and you don't need to invoke it. You, you just said that it's a, a wonderful time, or an exciting time. And it struck me that I was having somewhat the opposite thought, that it's an even more daunting time because if you have um, the ability to squeeze out functions from different combinations of and levels of biological activity and regimes, um, then it, it becomes harder to tell a nice clean story, right? It, it, you become less confident that you're even looking under the right lamppost at it for the keys, right, at any given moment. Um, and I, I'm not sure what you think about that. I mean, I agree that it's exciting. I also think oh, now I need to account for the different combinations of oscillations and um, uh, neurotransmitters and plasticity and circuitry and um, hetero, um, heterarchical uh, properties. So there's just a lot to account for in the dimension of explanation. But it's interesting that what you're doing in your description of the frustration of it all is is you're going all the way back to kind of ma right and you know and nick kriegerskorta has also talked about it which is 
you know, maybe you should start with the behavior, the function, the task, do a task level analysis, you know, and then start worrying about the details of how it's done. So here, you know, here's an animal, its task is to transport itself from A to B, give its body shape. But you still have to adjudicate. You know, so in other words, eventually you have to adjudicate. Yeah, so but in our neuroscience needs behavior paper, we try to see that there was an arrow of doing it, which is, What's the behavior? What's the task that needs to be done? What's the function? And then have an algorithmic description of it and then break the tie with implementational work. I, I mean, I still feel even, you know, what is it now, seven years later, whatever that paper came out, um, that there was still a logic of going in that direction, right? I, I, I think bypassing it, um, by going to simpler and simpler systems where you get the circuit immediately, mm -hmm. right? Sort of the sort of we mocked a little bit in that paper the sort of computational, you know, mechanistic, mechanistic cognitive neuroscience, you know, the, the Genelia sort of website with Vivek, where the idea is well, if you get to a simple enough system and you already are at the level of the implementation and you're allowed to call what's happening there cognition, you can short circuit that sequence that we wrote about in that paper. Um, but I don't think that you can bypass that sequence by getting to a system that a single cell or an insect and say, look, I'm going to be sharing Tonian on cognition because I've got such a simple system and I'm allowed to call what it's doing cognition and then I'll extrapolate, right? That's, that's I think, the alternative approach. What we're going to do for cognition in an insect, what Sherrington did for reflexes in the cat, I don't think so. I think, you know, and I think one of the interesting things that AI has, is giving us, and I think Sam Gershman on his Twitter feed has made this provocative point, is how much is neuroscience really contributing to our insights about cognition that we're not simply getting at the task level by doing AI, right? And I think there's been some objections to, to him, but I tend to agree with his position, which is that task analysis, psychological cognitive science, and then programming it into AI is doing more than circuit analysis more for the higher level phenomena. Doing more to what? It, it's, it's more progress, I think, towards the understanding of cognition is going to happen through a combination of cognitive science, behavioral analysis, task analysis, and programming computers than doing circuit analysis on lower organisms and then extrapolating from them. But do you, th do you th think that That's, same statement applies to wanting to understand the biological basis of cognition, or are you just allowing cognition to be its own function? You know, it's so if you're implementation level agnostic, I completely agree with you. But if you're interested in the, uh, let's say, the brain and how the brain does it, does that statement still hold? Well, it gets comes back all the way to what my brother calls emergence: is when does the understanding require looking under the hood? Right, And what you're implying is that it may well be that you need to look under the hood to understand cognition, but maybe you don't. Maybe, just like you know, the example he gives in a talk he gave last year, you know, Who's this? if you David? want to understand my yeah. brother, when you, when you want to understand Fermat's last theorem, how it was proven on the page, pencil and paper, it's irrelevant to the, the truth of Fermat's last theorem, That's correct. Can, what the state of the brain of Andrew Wiles. Yeah. So in other words, there are, there are situations under which the explanatory framework is autonomous from the lower level. It's screened off 
right? And so all I'm saying is, is it may well be that the principles of cognition that lead us to think we're understanding how the human brain do it may borrow from research done in AI yeah. where a more substrate independent conceptual framework can apply that doesn't require you to look under the biological hood. Now, I'm no way am I claiming um, functionalism all the way, but, you know, I think that one could say that AI is showing to us that functionalism can do quite a lot. If it's based on what was known about brains 70, 100 years ago already. <laughs> but I, but I'm, I'm not convinced that, 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 that the advances in AI that lead to more AGI-like effects, and, you know, I'm a skeptic about it, but you'd have to be a little bit of a strange extremist to say that there isn't a possibility and, and, and you know, that's another discussion as to why we might not get to AGI for biological reasons. Just I do want to make a final point. Just and I had and I had this discussion with David Chalmers. I'm very sympathetic to the idea that you need consciousness for system two thinking. And I was also talking to Antonio Damasio about this briefly in Portugal. And it may well be that consciousness, like pain, is biological substrate dependent. So ironically, it may well be that for the type of cognition that you and I are doing on this podcast, you can't be functionalist and just algorithmic. You have to combine functionalism with biological substrate to have things like consciousness. In other words, I, I really want to make it very clear. I may end up not being a pure functionalist, once it comes to overt, aware cognition. Which you think so it would be necessary ironic. to get to AGI. May or may not be necessary to get to AGI. Uh, and, and my, at, the, yeah. at the moment, if I had to put a stake in the ground, I would say that AGI will require system two, like Joshua has said, Mengio, um, and others. And it may well be that you come full circle and to get there, you're going to need biological substrate. And then you can't be functionalist. But when it comes to algorithmic intelligence, system one, you can be functionalist. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I think that I uh, agree with you if I had to put my own stake in the ground as well. I mean, part of the exercise of learning more and more about um, cognition for, for my own sake is is actually going away somewhat from functionalism for things like um, higher cognition and and yeah and you know when you read people yeah yeah, yeah it, you know and you read you know I don't know if you have ever had Mark Solms on the on the show nope or, you know his book The Hidden Spring but now I vehemently disagree with where he goes at the end of his book but it's really good in terms of how it covers you know he does an amazing thing where he combines the drives of Freud with all the drives that are brainstem dependent in neuroscience and saying that without those, you know, and it goes all the way back to the Greeks, you know, the difference between the passions and the reasons and maybe you need them both, right? Um, and when I was speaking to David on the show about that, he said, oh, John, that's very dichotomous of you, right? That's just um, what I was thinking. And like all, yeah, and, and, and uh, all dichotomies end up being simplistic, um, true, um, but I I'm I am not a functionalist all the way to these kinds of discussions and how the brain is doing it. I, I 
because in the end an AI is going to have to care to have a discussion where there's no obvious cost function. I mean, what's the cost function of this discussion you and I are having? Right. right? What are we optimizing for? Right? It's so open-ended. Right? So in other words, it's almost as though open-endedness is the feature that we have. Kenneth Stanley would like and to say. Open-endedness. Who would? Ken Stanley. He's the open uh, evolutionary. Oh yeah, I know Ken Stanley. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make. I don't want to come across as sort of a sort of strident functionalist all the way up. Far from it. So in other words, you know, in, in terms of my own trajectory, it's like very substrate-dependent work on stroke recovery and hemiparesis through functionalism to a belief again at the other end in substrate dependence. Right? It's almost dinosaur shaped, you know. <laughs> Tail, big body, and then long again. <laughs> you know, I hope that, but I hope that doesn't sound completely incoherent. No, I mean, it doesn't to me, but um, who knows how it'll sound to the, the listeners. <laughs> All right, well, here, let's, let's end the episode. Listen, then... absolutely. And uh, look, that was great, Hijack. I enjoyed it. I hope it was okay for you. <laughs> I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you, thank you for your support. See you next time.